0: This episode is sponsored by Ruling Group. There are four gifts I've received over the years that really stood out, and the common link between all of them is each one was sourced through the Ruling Group. If you want to deliver amazing gifts that capture people's attention, go to giversedge.com to learn more. Hey, it's Ian Altman. On this episode, I'm joined by Eric Esfahanian. Eric runs sales and marketing for Griffin Networks. And what these guys do is they work with organizations to get a better sense of their performance metrics for their sales organizations to drive better results. We're gonna talk about the biggest mistakes and the biggest areas that managers overlook when it comes to measuring their salespeople's performance. We're gonna talk about the notion of CRMs and why it becomes the bane of existence for sales organizations. And then the three key performance indicators that organizations should be measuring to track the performance of your team. I think you're really going to enjoy the insight that you get from Eric Esfahanian. So, Eric, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, in.
0: Now, share with our audience a little bit, what's an unexpected fact that people may not know about you?
1: unexpected fact that people may not know about me is I got a bachelor's degree in philosophy uh, from, uh, from a school up here in, uh, in the New England area. And uh, usually when you graduate with a degree in philosophy, you're looking for, uh, the club, through the classifieds, looking for ads uh, for social critics. Um, <laughs> they don't pay very well, and they're not very uh, often seen. So um, I took a little bit of a roundabout uh, route to getting into business and getting into sales. Um, and I don't see many folks within philosophy entering that space, although I do feel that it's, a, it's an undermined asset to, uh, to take philosophy knowledge and move it into the business world. I think it's uh, definitely something that could uh, make uh, make dealing with uh, individuals a lot easier.
0: You know, it's it's funny. I remember when uh, when I was an undergrad student at the University of California, San Diego, I took a philosophy class and I loved it. I'm like, man, this is really awesome. And it was the I, I took this class on. Um, I forget what it was, like philosophy of logic or language logic or something like that. I'm like, man, this is really fascinating. And I went to the guidance counselor and said, so with a degree in philosophy, what do you do? They said, well, you either become a philosophy professor or you do something completely different. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, let's just say there's not a lot of people advertising for positions in philosophy. Yeah,
1: that's the God's honest truth. And you can only imagine my uh – you know my my parents when I told them I was going to be majoring in philosophy. I mean, and I'm going to Boston College, a pretty good school uh, up here in the area, and they're thinking, "What the heck are you going to be doing with that degree?" And I hadn't even thought that far. I thought, "Gosh, you know, I'm really interested in it. I like it," and that's about as far as I took it uh, through graduation.
0: That's funny. That's funny. So, what I really want to dive into today is you obviously have a lot of experience working with sales organizations. What are the biggest mistakes or hurdles that you see sales managers or executives running sales organizations face that just keep coming up over and over that they struggle with
1: Oh gosh, great question. You know we see a lot of a lot of companies that have a lot of sales guys you know two, three, four thousand reps at a time, obviously big organizations in many aspects you know the biggest challenges I see and problems with the way they're thinking of sales from a management perspective is they focus heavily on volume still to this day, and, and obviously you do you got to do your numbers. Um, you're looking at um, the amount of volume that's being uh, conducted by a rep, and really that's that's the key the key metric they're looking at when they look at overall effectiveness. How many calls did you make? Um, how many meetings did you have? And There's a lot of info and there's a lot of uh, opportunity to look at some of the lesser known performance indicators in order to really identify how effective is a rep, how effective is a manager, how effective is a team at doing the activities that are predictive of success.
0: Yeah, I think who was it? John Wooden. The um, Speaking of philosophers, John Wooden, who was the famous basketball coach at UCLA, but often is referred to as a modern day philosopher. Uh, as a quote attributed to him that says, never confuse activity for accomplishment. And um, and I think that's often the case is people I'll, – I'll joke with people when they'll say to me, yeah, I mean our people aren't generating enough sales, so – and I told them, look, you need to have more phone calls and more meetings. And the sales rep's thinking, oh, thank God. I thought they were going to tell me I had to sell more. Yeah, I can have more phone calls and meetings. If you want me to sell more, that's going to require more skill. So what should people be measuring instead of volume of number of calls and number of meetings?
1: Well, you know, it's, I think it's key to point out it's almost two sides of the same, the same question where you have, okay, what are they doing wrong? Well, they're really looking at one KPI and taking it to town and not really looking beyond it, that's really important. There are other KPIs that you also want to be able to to measure. Okay, well, how frequently are they reaching out to a customer or a prospect? Um, How long are their conversations? You know, are they too short? Uh, Are they five seconds in duration? Or on the other side, are they too long? Uh, Are they talking to people for 15, 20 minutes? Uh, beyond just raw calls, but looking into the conversational aspects of these interactions with customers and prospects, um, the meetings themselves, uh, there is a correlation between an opportunity that happens to show up in CRM uh, for $50,000 scheduled by the rep to close at the end of July. There's a correlation between that opportunity and the activities that led up to that opportunity. So if managers have an have a effective way to not only see, okay, great, I got this big set of opportunities and I'm going to manage them and I'm going to apply a discount waiting so that I don't look like a fool to my boss when I roll up my report to him or her. Um, There's that, but then there's also, okay, well how much effort and work did this rep conduct in order to put this uh, opportunity in a position to close this month? Because if you haven't talked to the rep, if if you haven't gotten from the rep an accurate understanding of how many times they spoke to that customer within the past, say, 30 days or 60 days, and you look in your CRM or whatever tool you use, and you identify there hasn't been any real communication with this customer in 90 days, You know what's the likelihood that that 90% forecasted deal is really going to close at the end of July?
0: Well, and I think also what happens is a lot of reps, the reason why it's forecast for the end of July is because it's either early in July or it's late in June, and the rep, being naturally optimistic, says, well, There's no way this thing can close by the end of June, and I'm measured on a monthly basis. So I'm going to arbitrarily pick the date for the end of July. And I always laugh because I say, yeah, you look at any pipeline, what percentage of the deals say they're going to close on the last day of the month versus on the 7th or on the 12th? And it's just because the reps have that false sense of optimism that says, well, man, I'm going to be measured at that point, so I'm going to figure out a way to close it by that day, instead of actually knowing, oh, the client's meeting on the 21st to approve this thing, so we should have this closed by the 23rd.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it was uh, Ventana did a study last year that said about 42% of deals that are forecast to close within CRM actually close. Yeah. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, you know, twenty-six billion dollars is spent on CRM every year. It's kind of a lot of money to be to be right less than half the time.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? And, and I, I spend a lot of time with people on what information are you actually collecting in your CRM because most of it, I believe, is superfluous. And there's a lot of value in knowing what type of information you're collecting. It's the notion of the rep who meets with a client and says, "Yeah, I had a great meeting," and you say, "What made it a great meeting?" And then they look to the sky and say, hmm, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, we just we got along really well. And they usually give a description that would be great if it was a date, but probably not so great if it's a business meeting.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that really cuts at the heart of, you know, another, another uh, problem that we see that, you know, our customers see a lot is they, they deploy a CRM or they drive utilization for their reps to go to CRM and input their information. And then that becomes their sun, moon, and stars for getting an understanding as to what's really happening out there. But the accuracy of this information, just like you indicated, these reps are being forced to put their information into CRM. They do it sparingly at best, almost entirely optimistically, and it probably contains maybe 15 to 20% of all the activity they really did. They just don't want to have to log this info. But meanwhile, the manager is taking that data, rolling it up, In making business decisions, in some cases, the company's making budgeting decisions based on this data that's not accurate in any way, shape, or form. So the second question you ask, Ian, is, all right, you're looking at all this information that's sitting in your CRM. How accurate is that information? Yes, what are you capturing? But then what's the accuracy percentage? Um, Because at the end of the day, that's the way CRM vendors sell their product is on this this ROI aspect. But you ask yourself, well, it's a web-enabled database until you put information in there. So unless you're making sure that that information is comprehensive and accurate, how can you make it uh, an ROI decision on uh, on a CRM just like that?
0: Sure, and, and of course, the reps, the the very nature, the the personality profile of a great sales professional, is the antithesis of a great data entry clerk. So the the top reps have a level of creativity, independence. And um and kind of process oriented um mindset and then you get you basically take these people, and you say, Okay, now go key in a whole bunch of data and the rep says, Yeah, I hate doing that. So they kinda of phone it in and they you know, they, they trickle in stuff here and there just to be in compliance, but you and I both know it isn't accurate. So what should they be doing instead? Well
1: there's There's tools out there. The old old, uh, story goes, you know, cops want to be out there busting bad guys. They don't want to go back to the station and and write out reports. Sales folks are no different. Um, There's a lot of tools out there. You know, with the the whole trend uh, through the 90s, moving away from sort of the centralized call centers, centralized boiler room sales operations, into this more highly distributed, highly mobile environment, um, all that visibility that you had in the call center goes away in that world, and really all you're left with is CRM. Um, What is enabled through that whole migration uh, via the Internet uh, in mobility is tools that allow you to basically capture that information in in a seamless, automatic fashion, right? If they're using a phone call to make phone calls, you know what? You should be able to capture that information as a manager without the rep having to do anything. And you should be able to have that put into your CRM automatically without the rep having to do anything so that when you go in and you want to look at what um, you know Rep A did last week, you know with 100% accuracy the inbound and outbound calls they made, how those calls ended, and you'll have a passing understanding. So when you go in and have an actual conversation with uh, Rep A, you're saying, okay, I know you made 87 calls last week. I know that you had 42 conversations. At least at a baseline, I got my handle around what's happening with, with that rep, and now I can be coaching on things like, um, how they handled objections, um, how they dealt with the customers to identify the behavioral patterns that I may want to showcase or I may want to coach away in order to improve that rep's ability to execute what I need them to do.
0: The technology is all there. And presumably you're tracking duration of call, frequency of calling people. And my guess is once you have enough of that, you can start to track patterns that say, our most successful people tend to follow this, t- this type of behavior.
1: Yes, that's the first phase. It's what we call sort of the quantitative data. You get your arms around you know, that age-old question of, what are my reps doing out there today? Answering that question quantitatively with a high degree of accuracy, and then you begin to say, okay, well, you know what? My top flyers tend to make between 20 and 30 calls between 4 and 6 p.m. Uh, five days a week. So maybe that's when I should be scheduling my call nights to get everybody on the phones, so that we can maybe improve the effectiveness of the average rep instead of just my top folks. Yep. Okay. Then the second part of the equation is the qualitative. There are technologies out there that exist and have for a while that can take conversational data, the conversations that that rep is having with customers, with prospects, uh, how they upsell and cross sell and do they ask for referrals, stuff like that. Now you have the analytics that can actually tell you the conversational information that the rep is having out there, what are the good good and bad and ugly around those things so that I can be on top of not only how many calls are making, but what's happening on those calls. Sure. Because that's where you take coaching, which was a really a manager's job is to coach and improve the effectiveness of the largest percentage of the reps that they have under their control. Now you understand the behaviors that are getting the results you need, and you can not only just say, hey, rep B, I want you to sound like Rep a. I want you to listen to him, ride along with him, and sh- let him show you how it's done. Now you can say, this is the example of the way a competitive call should be held. You know, yeah. This is the example of a referral. Actually, here's five examples of, of an optimal referral call, uh, new hires. This is how it's done, and I'm giving you accurate examples of it happening. And you're doing it across a, a sales environment where they're not all sitting in a boiler room or sitting in a centralized office. They can be anywhere. It doesn't matter anymore. The internet and mobility have brought that, but there's so many managers now who still think, all right, I got CRM. I'm using CRM and maybe an Excel spreadsheet and weekly con calls, and I'm going to do my best.
0: Yeah. Well, and the thing is that at that point, all they're doing is tracking activity, but they don't really know what sort of results. It's like, I'll get people who say, well, how many calls should my reps be making? I'll say, well, it depends what kind of conversations they're having.
1: Yeah. That's right. And how many calls? How many calls does it take to set an appointment? Do you know? Yeah. In
0: in my business, most of my business comes inbound, and we track and manage very few opportunities, but we have a ridiculously high closing percentage because normally, by the time someone calls me, it's it's pretty far along, and the question is usually, "Is Ian available on this date?" Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different type of operation than someone who's trying to sell IT services to someone who already has that same IT service.
1: Right. Yeah, I, mean, I, I look at it like, you know, I break it down by what type of selling are you doing? Are you doing B2B selling with long, complex sales cycles? Or is it more, you know, I guess, this, this, for lack of a better phrase, transactional? Because at the end of the day, if you're doing long, complex sales cycles, you know what? CRM is really, really, really important. If you're doing transactional types of or, or sort of low-touch sales, you know what, CRM is a lot less important. You're not going to get the ROI that your vendor promises you in that type of an environment. Um, But activity at the end of the day, whether it's good, bad, whether it's inbound or outbound, whether it's meeting, whether it's a phone call, whether it's an email, the activity that is predictive of success is really what managers should be measuring from, not the pile of money as identified through opportunities that are reported within CRM uh, with uh, anticipated close dates. If you measure the activities that are predictive of success, you have far better control over the actual success itself. It's the old cause and effect argument. And that's really the opportunity that presents sales managers these days. Yeah, you could complain all you want that the boiler room days are over and you don't really have an accurate picture of what's going on. But you know what? This, in this day and age, you really should and you can at, at not a whole lot of cost.
0: What are the other big challenges that managers face today that, Kindly aren't that tough to overcome. So what are the other areas that you see people? So we talked about this idea of of them focusing on volume. We talked about the different KPIs. So we want to make sure we're not just looking at the number of calls, number of meetings, but the frequency of communication, the length of calls, and then getting into the qualitative side of actually looking at the conversational data Presumably using voice recognition, other tools to know exactly what's going on. What else? What else are a lot of organizations kind of missing that they should be looking at?
1: You know, I, I mean, I think the perennial, the perennial issue that seems to be faced by everybody is is naturally uh, effective uh, recruiting, hiring, and onboarding. Uh, I think that's a universal challenge. Uh, there, there's all, all over the place. There's schools of thought around that. But in most cases, companies don't have a systematic way to identify who's going to be a good fit. And then if they do make it, take a chance and hire somebody, they don't have a real good way of setting expectation and measuring the, say, 90-day performance of that rep to, ensure, to see, whether, almost on a probationary basis, to see whether they're exhibiting the capabilities, the skills, the curiosity, the intelligence to be successful or not They just sort of bring them in, put a binder in front of them, maybe have a few training sessions, and then send them out there. And if after six months, they haven't done what what you thought they needed to do, they say, all right, well, that guy's not going to work out. I'm going to go and find somebody else. And it's an incredibly expensive proposition. The reps, the sales reps are the tip of the spear when it comes to growing a business and growing revenue. So you should be treating these folks in their choosing, selection, onboarding, and training as your most important job. Because if you do it poorly, it's going to be so costly and you're going to put yourself in a position to really fail, yourself and your team. But if you do it right, my goodness, then you are, are incrementally that much better and you can have fewer people contributing more. And the opportunities to improve the overall top-line growth uh, multiply if you do the front-end work, the recruiting, hiring, and onboarding far better than than than
0: many companies are doing today. Yeah, Eric, it's it's kind of it's kind of funny. There's a there's a tool or product that we have called Same Side Improv and it's all designed around people rehearsing real-life customer conversations on a regular basis. And it's structured so that you get three people in a group that can do it either remotely or in person and it's designed to have 1-hour blocks where you do this. And I tell people, look, do it do it over lunch. And the organizations that do it dramatically outperform the ones that don't. And it always shocks me how many people actually have the game and don't play it. And then I asked the question, I said, well, okay, so if you did this, what, what effect would it have on your business? Oh, it would be dramatically more successful. So why don't you do it? Oh, we don't have time. Okay. So you guys are acknowledging that you'd rather screw up live with your customer than Mm -hmm. rehearse it, right? Then rehearse it and get it right before you show up. And it's funny, but that's what happens is people get lazy and the top managers, they enforce this every week with their teams Mm -hmm. and it makes a huge impact. And the people who don't, they don't get they don't get the results from it, and it's funny. I had, I had a group that said, "Well, I mean, we were going to buy the decks, but it was going to be like fifteen dollars a set." And I said, "Okay, what's your typical sale? Well, our typical sale is a quarter million dollars." Okay, so let me, let me see if I get this straight. So, you were going to have to buy five sets, so the seventy-five dollars just wasn't worth the investment to close, you know, thirty more deals a year. Yeah, I can understand that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's remarkable, and I think a lot of the problem is, and I can empathize mm-hmm. with this because I, I deal with it myself uh, within, within my company, is there's just an overall uh, fatigue with technology tools. Uh, every vendor has co-opted every value proposition and assigned it to their own product. And they're all getting more and more aggressive with uh, outbound marketing to people to get appointment sets. And it's become such a noisy space that in many cases, you know, these tools are, are, are perceived as being, you know, shoved down by corporate and the field is, they don't want any part of it. They're already looking at three screens, they don't want to look at four. And I can't, I can't disagree with them. I agree 100%. Um, you know, the number one thing that I teach my sales reps is not how to close at all. I think that's, if you're doing your job properly, closing should be an effortless and invisible phase of the sales.
0: Yeah, the, the way I often describe it is if you're doing your job well, closing is a matter of saying, so would you like our help? And that's the whole thing. <laughs> if, if you do it well, that's what the close sounds like.
1: Yeah, and in this day and age, I happen to say, you know, we have a product, a uh, suite of products. So it's generally interesting. It's curious. It's not difficult to get somebody on the hook and interested in learning about it. The number one uh, sales phase that I train these folks on is qualifying is because, you know what, you're going to get plenty of people to come in and really want to know about your product. But you have to also look at the culture of the company and the management leadership of the folks in the sales organization, because there's a lot of folks that may want it, but they don't have the appetite, they don't have the culture that would instill these processes that would be needed to get clear visibility to every rep, no matter what they're calling from, 100% 100% of the time because quite frankly a lot of people have sold a certain level of behavior up to their managers and they don't necessarily want a clear understanding of what's really going on out there. I use the example of my 12-year-old, you know, he's much happier telling me he's getting all Bs than when I get the report card at the end of the semester and I realize he's not. Yeah. <laughs> managers, I mean again, just like sales folks have happy years, managers also there's a lot of things that they want to avoid themselves. Uh, and the accountability goes both ways. Yeah, you know what? My rep's got to be accountable to me for doing doing what I tell them to do in terms of activity. But i got to be accountable to them that if they're doing those things and they're not getting the results, well, that accountability flows back to me. And it's now it's on my job to make sure that I'm coaching them and helping them break through if they're showing the level of effort and they're doing everything we're asking them to do. Um, so it's tough out there because it is tough to cut through the noise.
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's, I think that's kind of the – one of the major elements that that a lot of times organizations miss it's funny you mention you mentioned this idea of this idea of qualifying about half of the program that um that that I work with um or that I deliver on same side selling about half of it is on qualification and sometimes i get people and they say well it seems like we spend a lot of time on qualification and I say yeah and we're going to spend even more on it because that's the difference between something that's real and something that isn't. It all comes down to qualification. If someone's a good fit, things are just gonna happen. It's gonna work out. If someone's not a good fit, it's a waste of everyone's time. So you gotta spend time early on in the process, learning as much as you can about who's a fit and who's not worth your time. And it's not a it's not a level of being arrogant. It's just a matter of recognizing that not everyone's a fit for you. And the sooner you can figure out who's not worth your time, the less they're gonna, the less they're gonna clog up your calendar and your pipeline.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always say, uh, to me, a no is as good as a yes. Yeah. Just do it early.
0: So Absolutely. You know,
1: at the end of the day, you you have because even if you know it's tougher for the newer folks because they don't have the busiest calendar, so they're thinking, well, I got an RFP request. Uh, we didn't know it was coming. We're probably like column fodder. But shoot, you know, I can keep myself busy with this for a month, and it's a big logo, and gosh. Maybe I should just do this, whereas I'm saying, you know what, you could say no and spend the rest of that time for the next three months prospecting and get four of those things that actually have a chance of closing as opposed to being column fodder for this RFP that came through from a big insurance company when you know, you know you're, you're, there's no chance they're going to ultimately go with you.
0: Exactly. No, it's, it's exactly it. There's a, there's a discussion that, um, that I have over and over with organizations where someone will say, yeah, you know, we, we bid on these RFPs. We don't win a lot of them. And I'll say, okay. So let's say it's a competitive situation. What percentage of the deals do you win when they say, hey, look, just submit a bid, but we're not allowing anybody to have an interaction with us? They said, oh, like maybe 5%. I'm like, okay. What about when you get there early, you have a lot of discussions with them, yet it still goes out to competitive bid? Oh, we win like 80% of those. Great. Then why do you ever pursue the other ones? Why don't you just take that time that you spend chasing those rainbows and just shift it to getting to other deals earlier. Right. You know, why don't you take a more bold approach with different opportunities and maybe you piss somebody off, but in the 40% of cases where they allow you to have a conversation, you just increase your odds from 5% to 80%. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, mean, I, I firmly believe that. I see it all the time. I mean, when I get requests solicited, uh, unsolicited for RFPs, You know, I tell my reps now, I say, you you basically reply back in no bid it. You say, we're not going to bid it. And at the very least, it'll make that, it'll change the power dynamic. And now you're just not another dopey vendor responding to this RFP that you're never going to win. But now, if they really want you, now they're in the job of trying to sell you on why they selected you and why it's going to make sense for you to participate. You're effectively playing hard to get. But suddenly, you know, maybe they do have a lot of good reasons for inviting you, but you can say, listen, we don't win these things. We're usually odd man out when we don't know they're coming or we don't have any opportunity to influence them. Why should we even participate? And it really puts you on a peer level with this potential customer. Exactly. And it really does change a lot because I, my, the worst thing And I tell my sales guys, my whole philosophy is around, you know, damn it, don't be one of those low-level sales reps who the customer says jump and you say how high. And you know, the customer is always right. And you're always just doing what they tell you. You need a lower price? Great. Let me go see if I can get management to approve a lower price for you, Mr. Customer. <laughs> you have to make this a peer-to-peer uh, environment. The only way that you can really build a business uh, smartly and one that's built to last is by saying sort of what you said earlier, Ian. Um, what is the win for you? What is the win for me? How do we both win? Because I'm not just going to let you win while I take a loss, but uh, I close a deal. Uh, I'm selling you as much as you're selling me on why you think you're a good fit for my product as much as I'm trying to sell you on why our product is, might be a good fit for you. And if we agree mutually that we're not, you know, great, good talking to you. Uh, maybe our paths will cross someday in the future, but i got to move on.
0: Exactly. I want to make sure we circle back so that people really get a handle on the three KPIs they really should be focusing on to get the best results.
1: Oh, sure. Sure. So if you're talking about quantitative specifically, the number of calls is really important. Um, you know, I always hear folks that are uh, they're talking about, well, you know, we don't cold call. You know, and my reply is typically, well, you know, nobody cold calls anymore. You know, of course. But if you're saying you're not using the phone to outreach to customers and prospects, I- I'd be a little bit cautious with that because there's a chance your competitors are going in there and doubling down. Because at the end of the day, nothing gets done. No valuable sales will ever get done. By email. And in fact, I'll pause it and say, you know what, even in these big colossal meetings that you have 40 people in the room and you give an unbelievable presentation, lights out, everybody stands up, claps, and performs. At the end of the day, anything meaningful that's going to advance that sale is happening on the telephone. So you have to know that at the very least you have reps who are using the phone to make and receive phone calls with their customers and prospects. So call, call attempt is key. The second one is, of course, conversations. Conversations is essential. Now, these are typical call center measures that they measure 10 ways to Sunday, but once you move into a field or a mobile environment or a branch office, you know, these KPIs, as simple as they are, they don't really measure that stuff. They don't, they, they don't even track it. Yep. They don't even have any idea. They've got to take the rep's word for it. Yep. Um, so conversations, because that's going to get to the biggest one, which is effectiveness. Um, out of every conversation you're having, what is the optimal goal, and then what percentage of your conversations result in obtaining the optimal goal. Yep. So sort of if you take call attempts and then you take conversations and objective of those conversations, that's your effectiveness metric. That's the second KPI. And then third is, in my, in my opinion, is frequency of, frequency of contact. How many calls does it take to get somebody on the phone? How many contacts does it take to get an appointment? How many times are they calling the lead before they throw it away? Um, in, my, in my world with my clients, they, they see 92% out of the gate of their leads that they're, in many cases, buying at, at great price, 92% of them are, are being burned after one dial. Yet, at the 8th, ninth or 10th dial, the rep is four times more likely to get the optimal outcome. So in, in, in one case, it may be a closed sale, in another, it might be a set appointment. But the reps are still taking leads and burning them after one dial. So it's one thing for a manager to go, hey, guys, come on, you guys got to dial these leads more than one time. You can't just be burning them after one. It's a waste of money, But Reps are going to hear it. It's going to go in one ear and out the other. It's another thing if you bring them actual analytics that's accurate and tell them, do you realize, folks, I'm paying you on appointment sets, and do you realize you're four times more likely, four times more likely to get an appointment set at the eighth dial of a number than the first, second, or third? Now you're moving the needle. So if you can take that uh, average um, frequency number and bring that percentage from 92% down to 85%, say. Say that's, that, there are real hard dollars associated sure. with that uh, adjustment. And it's entirely built on a manager managing to a standard of behavior and then enforcing that standard over time. Yeah. And the same thing goes for calls and contacts. And what you find is that over time, you root out your bottom 10%, the folks that don't, don't make any calls, and they're basically just hiding but you don't know it because you can't really track what they're really doing. They're good you know, BS sure. artists, if you will. You remove those folks and replace them with people who are maybe doing the minimum. Yep. You've already increased your average effectiveness ratio. Then you take your big 60%, the middle folks that are either going to go up and do well or they're ultimately really going to get discouraged, fall out, and you manage them all to a standard and you identify where are the coachability aspects, where are the weaknesses, can we make 30 calls a day, can we have 15 conversations a day, Let's set that baseline and then improve it and update it over time, week after week, month after month. What you're going to find is that you're going to get maybe a 2% improvement in effectiveness per rep. On a large scale, that could be $40 million of additional revenue in a year with a large sales force. If it's a small sales force, maybe you get 5 or 10% or maybe 15% sure. improvement in effectiveness. But that has a very direct correlation to dollars in the door, and your ROI happens on its own. It's, it's so significant. Because you're dealing with sales folks, the ones who are responsible for generating that revenue. It's not cost avoidance. It's not savings. It's actual new revenue opportunities. It's quantifiable. It's measurable. And that's the one thing I think is really, really missing in in a lot of sales organizations today.
0: Great advice. Hey, um, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Because I'm sure people are going to have questions. They want to learn more about what Griffin Networks does. Um, What's the best way for people to reach you?
1: Sure. Well, um, my company's website is www.GriffinSalesIntelligence.com. So it's G-R-Y-P-H-O-N, SalesIntelligence.com. You can always go to our website. It's uh, It's got a lot of information on, on who we are, the problems we solve for our customers. Um, and you can also get a hold of me and my email address, which is E.S. Vahanian. I'm going to spell that because I'm guessing that nobody's going to be able to guess it. I
0: mean, keep in mind, we'll have this in the show notes also.
1: Okay, good. Okay, so it's ESI. Just grab me an email. My phone number is 617-921-4808. Love to hear from anybody who has any interest, even if you just want to learn a little bit more about the marketplace. uh, We deal with a lot of very large sales organizations, um, and they struggle with a lot of the same problems that uh, that the smaller organizations do as well. Um, We see them. We're on the front lines. We see the good and the bad.
0: That's great. Well, you know what? I think you're giving people a lot of things they can think about, different things that they could and should be measuring to have a better sense of where they can get best, the best performance from their team. So I appreciate you for being on and for sharing your wisdom today.
1: All right. Thank you, Ian. It was good speaking with you.
0: There's a lot of great information Eric shared. Let me give you a quick 30 second recap of the things I think you can put together and apply in your business right away. First, don't just focus on volume of number of calls or meetings. Instead, you wanna go beyond that and start looking at some of the more qualitative pieces of information. Second, remember that the accuracy in your CRM application is suspect at best. So if you can start capturing real-time information from people, no matter where they're located, it might give you better insight. And then once you get into that qualitative information, start measuring the behaviors and effectiveness of your individuals And then compare that to the metrics that you have so you know what behavior and activities to look for that might indicate successful or struggling reps. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a guest you think I should have on, if there's a topic you want me to cover, just drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed and followed us on iTunes, and Stitcher. And of course, you can always reach out to me on Twitter or at my website at Ian Altman. So obviously Twitter is Ian Altman, and our website is ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.